Um, I'm not sure if our people on lighting, if there's anybody, if there's a way to get light over here or not, now that we have light. If they can check that and see. If not, I will be the voice in the darkness. That, I don't know if it goes as far back as this, does not, probably does not, does it? Um, they're telling me up here is better because of the height. Is this sufficient? You don't care really what I look like anyways. Most of you prefer it in the dark anyway. All right? So I'll have a little more volume on that. Um, a few things that we need to announce, and again, forgive us, this is a little bit disorganized today. First of all, I um, want to welcome back everyone who is on the Israel trip. I'm just concerned or curious. Those of you that were on the trip, if you could raise your hand, those around Israel. A bunch of them in the first service. Okay. <clears throat> we brought back almost all of them. Um, and we had 40, uh, uh, almost 40 people that were there and uh, just got back recently, so uh, we'll be sharing more about that. I had a number of pictures that I wanted to show you, but we don't have those, so we'll just zip it right along. Um, was at an event Thursday for Compassion Pregnancy, who we support. And I just want to tell you, I'm very impressed with the work they're doing. Uh, Tamika is one of our people who actually volunteers, and there's others that have been involved. Uh, they can use volunteers, but I've been very impressed. And I, I, there's more to say, but again, we're not going to take long today. Um, but they're doing a really, really good work. And so if you want to check out some time in regards to that, just very impressed with what I saw and what they're doing. Uh, one thing I was supposed to share with you today is that evidently underneath the balcony in the sanctuary, there is a blown speaker that is causing some of you some distress at some of the old equipment it was not part of the current upgrade, so we'll be addressing that soon, just so, just so you know we have heard you. And obviously this morning, it doesn't matter, <laughs> okay? But wanted you to be aware at least that we're conscious of that. The pantry will be available uh, at the atrium afterwards here, or the concourse rather, afterwards, if you'd like to pick up some food or pick up some food for someone else. Um, for those of you that are atrium people, usually, that are out here watching it on, on the stream, today we are all atrium people, and so we're out here. One thing that did hit us as we were gathered here earlier, some of us, is this. It's almost to the day that we got shut down for COVID. And it was weird to some of us as we contemplated canceling this service and the darkness and just the whole thing. But just the idea that we're able to gather with all the distraction around us that we're still able to gather three years later is just something to be celebrated, we thought. So we wanted to reference that. Now, at this portion of our service, generally speaking, we receive our tithes and offerings, and if uh, uh, some of us give online, some of us give in this service, but if you are exploring the things of God, if you uh, have a home church, we don't expect you to participate in the offering. Uh, we're told that we're to give freely without any manipulation. Um, it's an act of gratitude. It's an act of worship. It's something, weirdly enough, Jesus actually looked at one time and watched people putting money in, um, because I think he knows that that reflects something of our loyalties and our commitments. But again, uh, if you're in that place where you have a home church elsewhere or, or you're just exploring things, um, don't let that be an issue for you today whatsoever. But we are going to pause and receive that here today. So, Father, we come before you and we lay these things at your feet. 
Lord, all good gifts come from your hand. The fact that we're even able to gather here yet now in this way. The jobs we have, the relationships we have, the health that we have, the strength and encouragement we have even when our health is failing and your presence is there. And so, Lord, we pause and we give worship beyond just the praise of our lips. We lay these things at your feet and pray they'd be used for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that um, my background is Czechoslovak, but I have lived with so many Italians for so many years that talking without my hands is a real problem. So not having a headset and having to have my hands, I'm feeling a little, little restricted, so just make do. I want to lower the expectations of this sermon as much as possible. Um, I am on a seven-hour jet lag. I think I said that. Uh, I am on about two hours sleep because of the whole process last night. And, um, but I do believe that there's a purpose God has for us in gathering. And I believe that all the more after first service. So this is going to be a little bit of a lengthy passage. Um, but I am going to ask still that you would stand for the reading of the Word of God. And still reading out of Luke, um, chapter 19. Um, Jesus says, go to the village ahead, and as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. That's interesting. Nobody ever rode this thing. Hmm. Not used to having something on his back. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. That should work. Those who were sent ahead and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And it worked. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Father, I pray you'd anoint our time here, brief as it may be. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This passage is not what I want to focus on today, but I think it's important because next week is Palm Sunday. This is what this is referencing, um, where the people would have torn off palms and laid the branches and laid them down as Jesus comes into this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I understand from my Catholic friends that if you're in Catholic church, you actually get a real palm. So next week, if you want to dodge out, grab one, bring it here, feel free. Um, I thought that was cool that you get real palms. I guess I always thought they were synthetic ones. We don't do that, though. Um, and in this passage, we read, while well, elsewhere as palms were being laid down, that um, actually uh, some of their clothing was also being laid down. Now, next week is Palm Sunday. We have another focus point that we want to bring into Jesus' journey. So I want to touch on this today so we don't overlook it or forget it. 
And there's two points in here particularly I want to kind of address just quickly as we move past it. One is it said that his disciples began to cheer and, and exalt that he was coming into town. And you can sit here and think, okay, so 12 guys were running around dancing, and that's not it. There were many other disciples. There were the 12 that were particularly close to Jesus, but Jesus had many others that were disciples of his. And he had many others beyond that who were caught with his fame, that were caught with who he was. And so as he's coming in, there are hundreds, possibly thousands. The place would have been packed out. Jerusalem would have expanded to possibly a quarter of a million people during the season of the Passover in the time. And so it would have been packed out. It wouldn't a crowded environment. And there was the excitement now of this, this, this figure, this prophetic figure who's now coming into the city. And in the past, Jesus has said, after he does a miracle, don't tell people about it. Don't reveal who I am. But this time, everyone's cheering and saying Hosanna and calling him out. And when the Pharisees address him and saying, hey, you need to stop them from doing that, he says, no, not anymore. We're coming out. It's totally open and it's out there. And, and if I don't, the rocks are going to come out. The, the idea of Messiah coming into the holy city, there's something that's going to blow up over this. And so there's this, it's listed in almost all the Gospels as the triumphal entry, this triumph, this, this final key point moment of Jesus' journey. He's been to Jerusalem before, but now it's different. This time he's coming for a very specific reason and to fulfill his purpose. And so the town goes nuts. Never forget, never forget. Never forget that the same people that praise him days later call for his crucifixion. Never trust the mob. Never trust the crowd. Because crowds and mobs are fickle. And they turn at the drop of a hat. But at this point, it's, it's a moment of joy and celebration. Now, it turns a little somber because as they're coming actually over to the city, Jesus stops at the Mount of Olives and he looks. And in the midst of all this celebration, he begins to weep over Jerusalem. And I'd hope to show you some pictures this morning, and so we'll maybe fit those in next week if there's a time and place to do that. But if you're looking at Jerusalem as you come over the Mount of Olives, then you see the city spread out before you, and you will see this, this rectangle that is the Temple Mount. And today you'll see the Dome of the Rock with its golden dome and some other things. But in the time of Jesus, it would have been Herod's Temple. It would have been this magnificent edifice that that dominated the skyline. It, it, the rest of the city was maybe two-thirds, but this was almost one-third of what you're going to see. And the biggest thing that you see, the eastern side of it, and, and through this deep valley, and you see then just suddenly the, the whole temple area, uh, the temple mount area, the Holy of Holies, the place where previously um, uh, Abraham would have attempted to sacrifice Isaac only to have his hand stayed by God, saying, no, I will provide uh, the sacrifice, not your son, your one and only son, as it's emphasized, but my son, my one and only son. And it's on that place that the temple rose centuries later. And so as Jesus comes over the top for this last time of coming to Jerusalem, and he sees Jerusalem spread out and the temple spread out before that, it, it, it would have been a powerful sight. And then he begins to weep. Why? Because he says there's going to be a time of judgment that's going to come and not one stone will be left standing. Within 40 years of time, the Romans come as the Jews rebel, and they devastate the city. They literally tear down this incredible edifice that was viewed as one of the most beautiful in the world, and they tear everything down. The only thing that's left standing of the temple and the temple mount is not this eastern side that you view through the valley, but the western side. And all it is is the western retaining wall 
of the mount. So it's a squared off flat mount. They had a, these huge giant stones that would have been built up on the western side so that it could be a level area. And so all that remains is that western wall, just the retaining wall of the Temple Mount area, which is where people to this day will go of faith to pray as the last vestige of the temple, referred to as the Western Wall, sometimes as the Wailing Wall, because as the Jews would lament their circumstance or the loss of the temple, they would, they would wail in prayer. And so everything's torn down, just as Jesus predicted would happen, and it's taken apart. The temple area was a pivotal place for the Jewish people, and it was for Jesus as well. It was where some of the most significant things took place. And so as he comes riding in on this, this donkey who's never had anyone ride on it before, but seems to be okay with Jesus, and the celebration is going on, you get this, this, this very interesting imagery of this king who comes in humility. Instead of this wild stallion, you see this gentle colt. Instead of great vestige and clothing, you see a simple tunic. Um, you see people's clothes, just common people spread out, and just the common people celebrating. And so there's this humility and there's this brokenness. As he enters into the city, one of the first things he does then is he goes into the temple area. And the temple area um, is, again, at that time was fascinating. So if you're looking at the, at the eastern from, from the east and the western wall being on the other side, on this southern exposure is a series of steps that would be broader than, than this area here, probably two times, three times the length of this. And there would have been steps going up to the Temple Mount area, but not all the way up. It would go up to a certain level. And then there were three doorways over here and two exit doors over here. And the people would go through these doorways. And as they go in, they'd go up the steps. And then they would enter into the Temple Mount area. So it's kind of like going into a stadium seating type setup. So you can imagine, if you will, as you come up to this gleaming edifice, and then you come up these series of broad steps. And then you go into this entryway, and you're going into this darkened, um, stepped cavern type thing, and then you come out and you're facing the temple. It was an incredibly powerful reveal to come out of that temple, out of that, that passageway and, and view the temple. Right behind him as he would have done that would have been the court of the Gentiles. And it was in this place that the money changers were exchanging their, their wares and selling things. And how many of you have ever done foreign travel before? How many of you crossed and have done foreign travel? If you've done that, then you've probably done money exchange as well, too. And you'll know that the rates can change. And depending on who you talk to, I've been in places where I go to three different vendors and get three different prices. And they'll all swear, there's no commission. Well, there isn't a commission. They've just decided to charge you higher of the rate instead of the proper exchange rate. And so they can cheat you in that way. And, and it's a real game being played. Well, this is the same thing that's being played here as people come with their local money and, and are trying to exchange it for the temple money or from Greek drachmas to, to Roman denarius, whatever the case may be. These guys are cheating the people instead of doing the proper exchange rates. They're building in commissions. They're doing different things. They're also selling different animals for sacrifice. All this is going behind. And, and Jesus loses it for a moment of time and he begins to flip tables and begins to chase them out and he says the classic statement my father's house is to be a house of what prayer you've made it a den of thieves and so 
we get this impression of this meek and mild Jesus who never challenges anybody, who never stretches anyone. He just is kind. No, there's a challenging. There's a something speaking powerfully in this moment of time. And that's the triumphal entry. That is what Jesus does in this place and time. There's something else that happens in the temple courts. A lot of different things. At a different point in time, um, Jesus comes into the temple courts in John chapter 8. And it says, all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now catch the imagery again of what I've just said, this magnificent temple mount that occupies one-third of the city, these broad steps that people would go up and then go through these triple entrances through this passageway, and then suddenly the, t the temple area itself is revealed. But this whole area on top that worship would have been going on, and, and once you get past the court of the Gentiles and the money changers, there'd be uh, um, different worship and different things taking place. It's in this place in this beautiful edifice in the center of everything that they bring this woman. The exposure, the, the, the heartlessness, the cruelty, the weird focus on just the woman. Um, the man's not present. They bring her in, and they bring her before him. She's a tool for their purposes to entrap Jesus. That's all she means to them. There's no justice, there's no strive for redemption, there's no care or concern or love of any kind. She's strictly a tool for their purposes. He bends down, starts to write on the ground with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He's not saying don't, he's just saying who's without sin. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him, who heard, began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Interesting. Maybe they're a little more conscious. Maybe this had stacked up more stuff. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Then Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some people want to stop at that point where he says, neither do I condemn you, and say that Jesus was okay with this. He wasn't. The complete passage says, go now and leave your life of sin. These men had brought her for their own purposes without any concern, no chance for redemption, only death was in the offing. Jesus challenges what she has done, but his purpose is not to their destruction. The purpose is for redemption, for the change of life, for the change of style. And so he says, I'm not here to condemn you, but I am here to see you changed. I am here to see that this doesn't continue on. And so I'm saying to you, I don't condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. Do not, do not go back into this. You've been spared. You have a moment that, that should transform your life. Dostoevsky, Fyodor Dostoevsky is a writer of Russia, Russian writer, wrote some really powerful stuff. And um, one of the most accomplished writers you're going to find of, of, of Russia. Early in his life, Dostoevsky went through a, a basically a virtual resurrection. 
He'd been arrested um, because he belonged to a group of radicals that had been judged treasonous by Tsar Nicholas I. And so Tsar Nicholas, to get these young guys who, these dilettantes who are playing at revolution, um, he wanted to give them the gravity of their situation. And so he sentenced them to death for their actions. He gets them dressed up in white death gowns. They're led to a public square where a firing squad is waiting for them. Blindfolded, robed in these white burial shrouds, hands tightly bound behind them, they're paraded before a gawking crowd that had come to see the execution. Then they are tied to posts. And then the execution squad raises their rifles, ready. Aim, they cock the rifles. And then just as they're about to say fire, a horseman gallops in at a prearranged signal with a message from the czar. He is going to mercifully commute their sentence to life imprisonment. The whole thing was a mock execution. It was designed to psychologically torture these men. And Dostoevsky was one of those, shrouded, wrapped, tied, waiting for the final order, the click of the gun, only to find out that his life's been reprieved. Dostoevsky never recovered from the experience. He had peered into the jaws of death, he says, and from that moment, life became more precious beyond all calculation. Now, he says, my life will change. I shall be born again in a new form. And then as he boarded the train for Siberia, where he's going to be sent uh, away for what will turn out to be 10 years, some Christian woman hands him a New Testament, the only book he's allowed to keep in the prison camp. And he says that he devoured that book in his confinement and that after 10 years that he emerged from exile with an unshakable Christian conviction. He expressed it this way, quote, if anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, then I would prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. That moment of near death had transformed his life and so that he was now changed. This same thing takes place with this woman, I believe, who in that moment of facing that horrible moment that her life would be over, hung out in shame and all the rest, but Jesus extends to her not condemnation, but grace in that moment not agreeing with the sin, not looking past that, but giving her an opportunity. Something in that moment of time changes her life and transforms her. God never winks at sin. But Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, through him, the world could be saved. Now here's an interesting thing. That woman, we don't know her name. There's another woman who um, anoints Jesus' feet, breaks open perfume, pours it out, and there's a sense that she's a prostitute. Both of these women have been associated with Mary. But here's the thing. At no time do we have any biblical indication at all that, in fact, it's Mary. 
What we do know of Mary is that Magdalene is that she was a woman whom Jesus cast out seven demons in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. The name means she probably came from a place called Magdala, and yeah, that had some association with prostitution, but there's nothing to associate Mary Magdalene with prostitution. There's nothing to associate her with this adultery. There's nothing to associate her with this woman who breaks open the perfume. And yet this concept, this vision, this view of Mary has persisted for around 1,500 years. Where did it come from? Biblically, there's no basis. In the year 591 A.D., 591, Pope Gregory I gave an Easter sermon. And in that Easter sermon, he conflated, he connected three distinct characters named Mary and wove them into one and declared that was Mary Magdalene. And from that point on, this poor woman's reputation has been trashed. But as far as we know, and I put in strong parentheses the word only, the only thing she had were seven demons. What we do find with Mary is that she is a woman of unusual concern to Jesus. She witnesses most of the events surrounding the crucifixion. She's present at the mock trial of Jesus. She hears Pontius Pilate pronounce the death sentence. And then she sees Jesus beaten and humiliated by the crowd. She was one of the women who stood near Jesus during the crucifixion to try to comfort him. And she's also the earliest witness to Jesus and his resurrection. Passion of the Christ equates her with this woman in adultery. The slander continues on. So put a pin in that for just one moment. And let me give you something personal for a second. When we were in Israel, we had a guide, a, a, a small Jewish woman named Nili. N-I-L-I. I called her Nili Vanilli. I don't know if she liked it or not. She was really, very, very good. And she told us at one point in time that she did her master's degree in a certain type of studies. And um, it related to this. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? A bunch of you have. I don't know if you know the significance of them. They were discovered in 1947 in a cave uh, in Israel area. Um, a shepherd is trying to get a goat out of a cave, and he throws a rock to try and scare it out, and he hears it break something. And he goes inside and finds these porcelain jars, clay jars, with scrolls in them. Some of the scrolls date back to the 3rd century B.C., um, up to about 1 or 200 A.D., Eventually, the archaeologists get a hold of all these after some time, and they find um, basically a complete set of the Old Testament barring the book of Esther. And what was really fascinating is that these, uh, these original documents from 2,000 years ago, when matched with the Bible that we have today, see practically zero uh, variation in what there is is so minor as to not be relevant. Now, our guide was a... I wouldn't say a translator, but part of her classwork were that they were given copies of these scrolls and they were to match them and translate them and match them to um, current scripture. And she says, I don't know about my classmates, but mine, and this is not a woman of faith who's talking here, not Jewish, not Christian, but she says, mine matched up exactly. There was no variation from what had been written 2,000 years ago to what you have in your Bible today. 
These scriptures, these words that we're sharing here today, these things that are central to, to our belief, God has protected them. There is something about the ancient ways and the ancient way of writing that God speaks and is still relevant even yet today. That he tries to speak to us through his word. That God speaks to us directly when he walks in the garden after man has fallen and he, he doesn't say, where are you? Come out. He says instead, where are you, Adam? What you doing, Eve? What's going on? As he calls them out for fellowship. He does the same thing to Lazarus. When he calls him out of the grave, he says, Lazarus, come out. You see, when Mickey talked recently and he said that, that real love sees, what's meant by that is God sees us for who we are, past all the filters, past all the fluff. He sees who we genuinely are. Unlike the world around us that sees only our Instagram pages and our Facebook and all the externals we have, God sees us. Real love sees. Upon seeing us, that he seeks us out. He will go to great lengths to find us, to restore us, not with condemnation, but with restoration. You know, he sees us and seeks us, but as we're talking here today, he then speaks to us. And in a world today that says, I only affirm, I only say the positive, he gives us even the darker sides of us. Again, not with condemnation, nor to drive us down, but to lift us up to see us changed and transformed. He speaks, Lazarus, come forth. Adam, Eve, where are you? Peter, would you feed my sheep? Do you love me? Real love not only sees, not only seeks, but speaks to us in our time of need. So, back as we wrap this up to uh, this maligned woman named Mary. She's faithful to Jesus through everything that we see. Whatever demonic possession occurred in her, she's faithful with him. Whatever maligning statements are made about her by others at that time or later, any confusions with the other Marys, she deals with it. She stays with Jesus. And then we find this. We find even after he's died, even after he's died, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. The one who'd freed her from demonic possession, the one who had not condemned her but restored her, the one who had changed her life, the one who had transformed how she saw everything and how her interactions were with everyone. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. She had come in the dark before the sun had even come up to, 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 to minister to the body. It was still just barely getting light. 
She's been crying. There's tears in her eyes. Whatever the case, he asked her, Ramon, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you'd carried him away, tell him where you put him, and I'll get him. If you stole the body, if you took whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I won't tell anyone. Just let me minister to him, this person who changed my life. And then Jesus speaks. Mary. In the same way that Lazarus is called out of the dark of the tomb. In the same way that Adam and Eve are eventually drawn in. In the same way that Peter's restored. Mary, upon hearing her name and hearing him speak it, suddenly realizes who he is. This morning, I got here at 5 a.m. The emergency lights are on. We've got some power, but not everywhere. We don't have any heat. Um, a few others came here because they're really great people and because I called them at 5 a.m. And we're having a conversation about having services today, and we realize we can't have service. We're not going to have service. It, there's just too many challenges to overcome. This is Imagine this place darkened, and uh, just the emergency lights are on. It's still dark out. And so at 7 o'clock, I texted um, the team, and I said, we're canceling. I hate canceling. I hate the idea that someone comes and doesn't find the church open and welcoming. I just hate giving up. I'm just ornery. And so it's still niggling at me. And as we're starting to try and take some steps, I'm still like, isn't there something? And here's, I'm going to tell you the fact, absolute truth of what took place. Within 15 minutes of that time, as I'm continuing to agonize, I've given up, I've surrendered, we're going to go. The sun started to rise. I don't know the exact time. I may be off a little bit on this, but it was around the 7 o'clock mark or so. The sun starts to rise, and this room begins to, you can see it gets filled with light. And suddenly the emergency lights kind of faded away. And there was something just encouraging about having the sunlight. I don't know. I just felt like the Lord saying, no, this is not. And, and so I, I've done something I've never done before. Once we've called something, we stay the course. I reverse course. I sent people. I said, don't reverse it. We're going to meet. We yanked in a couple of generators out back. We threw some things together so fast that in first service, we're still talking to each other as the service is going on, what we're doing. But people gathered in the first service. And now you're here. And you wouldn't have been. And I don't know what your situation or circumstances. I don't know. Some of you are visitors, I'm sure. This is your first exposure to this church. Yay. But I'm struck by the fact that even in the darkness of that place, that as the sun started to come up and Jesus speaks Mary's name, that she sees him and recognizes him. And there was something that occurred in that moment. And I believe that even as the sun filled this place, that God has ordained that we should meet today. Now, I don't know what portion, if anything, of this message applies to you. If there's something about his triumphal entry, if there's something about his addressing those tax collectors, if it's something about how Mary has been misnamed, if there's something about the redemption and grace offered to this woman in the Temple Mount area, 
if it's the humility of him coming in, or if it's just him speaking the names of Lazarus and Peter, Mary, maybe perhaps this morning your name. We're three weeks from Easter. The most significant time in the calendar. There's a song that the team prepared that I just particularly think is beautiful, and I felt like that alone you needed to hear. So this morning, in this service that shouldn't have been, but now is, where you're sitting in a seat that should not have been occupied today, but it is, with you who would have been elsewheres, but now are here. I guess my prayer, my hope is beyond anything I've said or done on two hours sleep and seven hours jet lag. That God's grace would be expressed to you this morning. And I believe that if you'll receive it. And in this closing moment that you would hear your Heavenly Father speak to you words of redemption, not condemnation. Words that we know are still true. We have the documents for me on 2,000 years to go to know. There is no document I know that goes that distance and does not get corrupt. We can't have a phone conversation with another person without having it get corrupted. But God's words are still true and they're present for you here today. Love, real love, sees you. Real love seeks you. And this morning, in this time and place, real love speaks.
been speaking out for all of time, all of time. The words I hear you say, you've been speaking out for all of time, all of time. The words I hear you say, you've been speaking out for all. Love speaks. And this morning, I believe that God has still spoken in this moment. There are so many things that shouldn't be. We shouldn't be standing here right now. Some of us shouldn't be alive right now. There are those of us that shouldn't have the jobs that we have or the relationships that we have, and yet by God's grace, we do. As we begin to work our way towards Easter, let us be conscious of God's graciousness in our lives. Let's be appreciative of the different way that he does speak, and let's listen for it. Would you stand with me if you're not already standing and just... Father, we come before you today as your people. We get so spoiled at times. And perhaps today you allowed this to happen even just to rip off the cover of our comfort. But I pray, Lord, for whatever purpose, that we would draw in and hear your voice, not just today, but through this week, and draw close to you. I thank you, Lord, for the light of your grace and your redemption. I thank you, Lord, that you do not condemn, but that you restore. Lord, let us go forward with changed lives and changed perspective, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We do have a Good Friday service coming up, and I'll let you know, we have over 15 people that are being baptized at that Good Friday service. And so I just would mark that down. In fact, uh, as a reminder, if you're part of that, there's a meeting um, following here right now, and it will now be in the sanctuary. And so if you're part of that, if you can meet following the service in the sanctuary, if you have children over there, take them. Okay? If you want to linger, linger. And there'll be those up front here if you'd like to come forward for prayer. And if you're a visitor, God bless you. Thanks for joining us. God bless you. Next week, same time, sanctuary. It's your love, so take me back. 